0: Let's go ahead and give it a go. Well, good morning. I hope everyone's doing well in these days of sheltering in place. What a strange turn of events the world has taken, isn't it? But uh, I encourage you, never fear. God is still the Almighty, and He is our rock and our shelter. And... uh, before we start this morning. Let's open in prayer. Father, thank you that you are our shelter, that you are our almighty God, our creator, our father who loves us. And we pray that you will be with us as we go into this new book of uh, the book of Ruth and this new st- series that we're studying. We ask for your wisdom, we ask for your Holy Spirit to give insight into your word, and we pray, Lord, that you will. Uh, speak to each of us that are listening to this through your word as we go through this series. Thank you for your provision. Thank you for your protection. We pray that you will help us, Lord, even as we are uh, not together as a body in a one building. We know that we are together with many uh, in various houses throughout the area, and we thank you for that. We pray a blessing on our families in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, we are beginning a study through the small Old Testament book of Ruth. And I'd like to start by doing an introduction to the book of Ruth, providing you some historical context, and then highlighting some of the central points of the book. And then I'll have a brief introduction to Ruth herself. We've entitled this series, Ruth, A Love Story. The book of Ruth is found in the Old Testament between the books of Judges and 1 Samuel. It's one of the only two books in the Old Testament that are named for women. And it's a small book consisting of only 85 verses. Ruth was written in the literary form of a narrative which will provide us, as we study, guidance on how we are to interpret the text as we go through it. A narrative is, is uh, the most common literary form in the Bible, making up 40% of the Old Testament and 60% of the New Testament. So it, it's, it, it, it's throughout the, our Bible that we read a narrative text. And one of the rules that we should observe while dealing with a narrative in Scriptures is that we're not to draw too many inferences from the records of what people do in the story. In addition to this, we should not build our doctrine solely from narratives, narratives alone. Our doctrine instead should be based on the whole of Scriptures and the teaching of the Scriptures. This is not to say that narrative books, such as Ruth, should not be read and studied, and that we cannot learn a lot from them, far be it. They are important parts of the Bible. And along with all the books that are included in our Bible, they are God-breathed, as 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17 tells us. That all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Sinclair Ferguson, who's a present-day preacher, theologian, and writer, <coughs> excuse me, stated in his exposition on Ruth that this beautiful book is part of the biblical narrative of redemption in redemptive history. As New Testament Christians, we may think that the redemption story of Jesus Christ is, the only, is only identified for us in the New Testament. That's not the case. But there is a scarlet thread, if you will, running throughout the entirety of Scriptures. From the very beginning in Genesis, when Adam and Eve sinned against God, and the first sacrifice of an innocent animal on their behalf by God, was made, the story of atonement and sacrifice began and can be seen throughout the word of God. Ruth is included in this redemptive story. In Ruth, God reveals some of his detailed preparations made to fulfill his purposes in redemptive history. When reading Ruth, we must maintain a God-centered focus or what is called a theocentric focus. Our main focus should be on what God is doing in and through the people that are introduced in the story. We see from the, the biblical narrative books how God sovereignly works out his perfect will, which frequently includes the use of what may, we may consider relatively minor and insignificant persons. Think of that when you think of various stories that you have read in the Bible. How some of them seem to be just minor people. The, Ruth of, the story of Ruth is one of these stories. If not for this book and one verse in the Gospel of Matthew, we would have never heard of this young Moabite woman. But I submit to you that it is worthy of our time and study to find out more about Ruth. I encourage you to be reading along with us on the schedule that we posted on the website and uh, maybe read a chapter a day or in one sitting. You can easily read the book of of Ruth several times in a week. And that will be helpful to you, I believe, as we progress through The study. The book of Ruth took place during the time of the judges, which is why the book was placed after the book of judges in our English translations of the Bible, because of the historical context. It it makes sense to follow judges because it takes place during that time frame. The time of the judges consists of the time from the death of Joshua until the coronation of King Saul. This would probably be between the early 14th century and the late 11th century BC. The writer of Ruth is unknown, but Jewish tradition credits the prophet Samuel as the writer. The location of the events of Ruth lie in and between the city of Bethlehem in Judea and the country of Moab which would be located southeast of Israel on the eastern side of the Dead Sea. And I have a map here that I'm going to show you on the video, and I'm going to try to put that on the website and on the um, blog so that you would have that available for you. And on sermon.net, look in the the section called Notes. But that's a map of uh, that time frame, the red line there going between Bethlehem and Moab, indicating the traveling that they that took place. Hopefully that's helpful to you. The country of Moab was east of the Dead Sea and north of the Arnon River. The area was previously allotted or given to the tribe of Reuben by Moses when the Israelites were going into the promised land. Remember when the, the promised land was divided up to the 12 tribes of Israel. Some of the tribes were given land on the eastern side of the Jordan, and this area would be where Reuben was to live. You can find the description of the allotments in Joshua 13. at your convenience. The Moabites were descendants of Lot, who is Abraham's nephew. Lot's descendants moved into this area and intermarried with the previously existing peoples that occupied the land. And therefore, they would be looked at as unclean, uh, not pure Jewish people anymore, and they were looked down by uh, the Israelites. There was a long and frequent turning over of lands by fighting that took place between Israel and Moab in Old Testament history. Moab had a history of gross sins, such as idolatry, and uh, things that they would do during their worshiping of their gods, such as uh, is sacrificing their children to their gods. And there was a period of time when they refused to allow the Israelites to pass through their country on the king's highway, when the Israelites were traveling from the promised land into Egypt. And because of these, the Moabites were cursed. There's actually a Levitical law that prohibits a Moabite from entering the assembly of the Lord for ten generations. And for a reference point, the country of Moab would be in the present-day country of Jordan. The MacArthur Study Bible states in its introduction to Ruth that there are several important theological themes that are revealed in Ruth, and I would like to use those. First, that God's redemptive plan extends to both Jews and and Gentiles, which is important, especially for us, because we would fall in that second category. Secondly, that God saves both men and women, and that they are both co-heirs of God's saving grace. This is especially important when you consider the status of women in the ancient times. Thirdly, the book describes God's sovereign and providential care of seemingly unimportant people at apparently insignificant times, which later proved to be monumentally critical to accomplishing God's will. Kind of talking about some of those people that we might have read and looked into it. Why is this person even in this story? Who is this minor person? But yet we find later that there was a great reason for that purpose, or for that to take place. Fourth, that Ruth is identified as a member of the genealogy of the Messianic line, and that Boaz, as a type of Christ, becomes Ruth's kinsman redeemer. And we'll learn more about that as we go deeper into the book of Ruth. So there is much to learn from this small book in the New Testament or in the Old Testament. That's probably enough of the background for the book. Now, I would like to introduce you to the person of Ruth. And we'll do this by reading today's passage. So I'll be making comments as we're reading um, through the text. So please go ahead and turn to Ruth chapter 1, and we'll begin reading together. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, And a man of Bethlehem in Judea went to sojourn into the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And the name of the man was Imelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilon or Chileon. They were Ephorites from Bethlehem in Judea, and they went into the country of Moab and remained there. The chapter gives us some information in the opening verses to set the story. But if we're not careful, we can miss some important parts. The story took place when the judges ruled in Israel. The book of Judges precedes Ruth and details the history of the time of the judges. The very last verse in Judges 21 tells us that in those days, There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It was a time in the history of Israel when the people would sin against God. God would send an enemy to punish them. The people would eventually repent and cry out to God. And then he would send a judge to deliver them. This cycle is repeated throughout the book of Judges. So generally, it is a very dark time in the history of Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. As wonderful as that might initially seem to someone, that would be chaos if everyone did what they wanted and what they thought was right. Not only was it a... Morally dark time in Israel. But because of their sins, God had sent a famine in the land. He had withheld the rains. I'd mentioned in a blog a few weeks ago that I thought it was interesting how God used famines in the Old Testament to motivate his people. And here is an example. But don't miss the point. When God withheld the reign, it was typically to discipline his children with the desire to bring them back into the fold and to bring them to repentance. So when this small family from Bethlehem left their home, and traveled to a foreign country, especially one that is cursed as Moab is, it showed that they had little faith in God to provide for their needs. They were not trusting God. They were trying to do it their own way. Do it on their own. Verse 3, But Imelech, the husband of Naomi, died and was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years. And both Milan and Shilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So Amalek and his family moved to Moab and they remained there for 10 years. While there, their sons married Moabite women, which they shouldn't have done because of the curse, first of all. And secondly, Israelites were prohibited by their Levitical law from intermarrying with non-Jews. It was forbidden. So they were going against that. Then Naomi's husband and both her sons, both they died. Everyone died. How, how tragic. Can you imagine that, being in a family where all the male offspring and the husband passed away? Imagine the distress that Naomi and her daughter-in-laws are feeling. This story gives us a glimpse of how God works through the hard times of life. Even when we may not even realize what he's doing behind the scenes. Quite frequently that is the case. Even through the sins of his people, God works out his will and his purposes, and he will always work for his glory. Naomi has experienced leaving her home and her family in Israel, moved to a foreign country, experienced famine, faced the death of her husband and her sons. By the end of verse 5, Naomi is in ruins and distressed. It would not be an exaggeration to say that she has had a bad 10 years. When these events were taking place in the Middle East, in this region, to be a widow and not have family to help provide for you, potentially placed you and it may force forced you to live in poverty. And very possibly, you would die from the results of this. There would have not been even anyone in Moab that would have felt any responsibility whatsoever to assist Naomi. She was a foreigner. What would they care? Death hangs heavy over the story right from the start. Again, a word to describe it would be just tragic. Then she arose and her daughters-in-law, with her daughters-in-law, to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughter-in-laws, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Naomi heard that the famine had lifted. In Israel, And she decided the best thing she could do would be to return to her home country. Maybe things would be improved among her own people. So Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah began to travel back to Bethlehem. And I believe the fact that the writer provided so much space to this event should be an indicator to us that something important is taking place. We know from our New Testament insight that God indeed was working behind the scenes to accomplish his purposes. And we're given a glimpse of what that work was at the end of Ruth in chapter 4, verses 17 and 22. And I'll let you look those up. Verse 8, but Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Naomi decided to go home. And she tries to release her daughter-in-law's to remain in their own country and to return to their mother's homes. This was a way to say to them that they are still of marrying age and by returning to their mother's house, they could most likely marry again and start new families. Naomi tells them that she has nothing to offer them. I'm ruined. Just stay home. The telling of this conversation is emphasizing Naomi's misery. But it's also preparing us for a custom in Israel of the kinsman redeemer. That takes place a little later in Ruth. And after laying out Naomi's plea and position, it only makes Ruth's response and her faithfulness to Naomi that more amazing. Orpah was convinced to go home, but Ruth had a very different response. Listen to what she says. Verse 15, and she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you, For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, She said no more. Ruth's actions and words is nothing less than a spiritual conversion taking place in her life. She's forsaking her past. She's forsaking her past religion. She's forsaking her family and her people to go with Naomi and to make Naomi's people her people. And more importantly, to make Naomi's God. Her God. And who is Naomi's God? But the God of Israel. The great I am. The one true God. That's who she is looking to. In Ruth's words, she's using covenant language that would be similar to what God used when making a covenant with his people earlier in the Old Testament. It's also covenant language that is familiar to what is used in the marriage vow. It signifies the sacrifices, the commitment, the love, the realization of what is being given up to take on a new life. I'd like to conclude with what Sinclair Ferguson stated in his chapter on Ruth's conversion. And he says that if you read the first chapter of Ruth and believe that it is mainly centered on Naomi, then you're only getting half of the story. The story of Naomi is about Ruth. More importantly, it is about God bringing Ruth to himself and positioning her life in the ongoing unfolding of his purposes for the world and that is ultimately going to come through his son while it may be easy for us to read the narrative on Naomi and think you know what she sinned and therefore she's suffering that's the consequences of it God's ultimate purpose has not been to punish her for her family's spiritual failures In abandoning the land and the promises. Rather, through the mysterious intermingling of his providential control over history with Naomi's family's failures, the Lord's purpose has been to reach through her life to bring Ruth to himself. And I would say in bringing Naomi back home to where she is supposed to be, not... In a physical sense, although that is taking place, but in her spiritual sense also. During Naomi's extended stay in Moab, God was plowing. Now it's time for harvest to begin. Now God is beginning to reap. I would recommend Sinclair Ferguson's book called Faithful God if you're looking for a good resource on Ruth. It's one of the ones we're using. Well, thank you for your attention. There's much more that I could have added, but being that this is by video and podcasts, I, um, I'm trying not to go too long. So I hope you will read the text, read the book, keep up with us, listen to the, the messages over the next weeks. And uh, I think you will find, as I have, that Ruth is very interesting and I'm looking forward to going through the book together as a church, even while we're not physically together. So let's pray. Father, again, we come to you. We thank you for this wonderful story of Ruth, of her family, but we especially appreciate the conversion that is taking place. We thank you for the... the uh, the various men and, and, and commentaries that you have provided us to be able to study and look deeper into your word with with helps from people who know the languages who know the the uh, cultures, the things that help us to understand what is taking place much more richly. We thank you for that. We pray that you will help us, Father, to see your hand throughout this book and just ultimately see the uh, the wonderful purpose that you've accomplished because of, of Ruth. And Lord, we pray that you will be with us, keep us safe, keep our families safe and healthy, and we look forward to the time that we're able to come back together as a body and worship together and have communion together and fellowship again together. In Jesus' name, amen.